Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So this episode of Wild is like an off-site office culture building day. We're going to put our emails on out of office and bring in a high-energy motivational expert to get granular on our communication skills. Frankly, if the world needs anything right now, it's better and more authentic and discerning relating. It might help us stop cancelling each other and blocking and ghosting, slapping each other at awards shows, gaslighting, rejecting the premise of the question, chucking in false equivalents, telling each other to do our own research and even the starting of wars. We need more than anything to get a lot more artful at navigating the complex problems of the world together. Sarah Wilson brings you wild ideas for a fired up life. So I've called in Sarah Ness, a world expert in and the unofficial organiser of the global authentic relating movement. Sarah's coached big names from Google to Burning Man in the art of difficult conversations. In so many ways, we seem to have lost track of how and why we get into heated chats. I see it all around me, from those viral videos of people throwing tantrums at hardware store assistants to throwaway comments in my Instagram feed. Conversations online and in the world around us have become just more difficult. How do we relate to people who've gone down conspiracy rabbit holes? How do we navigate teenagers who've been in a pandemic cocoon? How do we fathom political discussions when the whole landscape has fragmented? So pull up a beanbag and grab yourself a free mint from the bowl and we'll put all of this and more to Sarah Ness. So, Sarah, look, are we making it up? Has our ability to communicate taken a huge dive or have the conversations that we need to have these days got more difficult or both? Can you shed some light on where we're at today? Yeah. I don't actually think that we're necessarily worse at communication than we always have been. I think most of us are pretty terrible at communication regardless. (laughs) At least I'll speak for myself before I... Um, before I knew that there was a way to learn so-called better communication or learn to learn any skills in it, uh, it was kind of like the whole thing was a black box for me. It was not something I'd ever, you know, realized that there could be rules or norms or understandings for. And I think most of us go through life like that. We learn how our parents talked. We learned how our friends talked when we were growing up. 
maybe we learn one philosophy like nonviolent communication or authentic relating or something, but we don't really get exposure to the way a wide variety of people speak and interact unless we've lived in different cultures or um, worked with very different groups. So I think that probably people are exposed to more different types than they have previously been if they find, if they kind of like look outside their doors these days, but we aren't given a lot of skills for how to integrate that information. So that's one piece is like, I don't think we're worse, but I don't think we have a lot of ways to get better. And I think we tend to be pretty overwhelmed by complexity. And there's a lot of difference around us right now. There's a lot of different perspectives and there's a lot of chaos that's happening in the world, a lot of fear and uncertainty. And when that happens, psychologically, we tend to want to batten down the hatches to what we know. We want to take care of our friends and family. I know during COVID, one thing that happened is a lot of us, even those who'd been spreading ourselves very thin and trying to help a lot of groups outside of our own went, oh shit, like, what about my friends and family? Like, are we safe? I moved out to a farm in the country with a couple of friends and, you know, started calling my parents more. Like there's this, let me go closer to the people I know. And then one of the downsides of that is it means that we don't talk as much with those we don't. Yeah, it's interesting that the uncertainty thing and the chaos you mentioned, what it's resulted in from what I can see is a desire to hang on to certainty, you know, and so we've become very didactic and very binary and dogmatic in our thinking and our, our language. Has that been something that you've observed as well, particularly since the pandemic and I, th- I guess Trump, I think, had a lot to do with it and everything that's been in flux for the last couple of years? Yeah. And as far as I'm reading, there's a ton of different reasons why we might be getting that degree of polarization, but it does feel like more and more as we're confronted with bigger and bigger global issues, we're, we're seeing them as binary. We're going, okay, either you're conservative or you're liberal, either you're pro-Black Lives Matter or con, or there's even places where we're getting these weird distinctions. Like if you're not with us, you're against us. If you're not with us and loving Black people, you hate Black people. And it's like, wait a second here. <laughs> like, you know, how are we, how are we seeing these dichotomies? So we've got these weird, like, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of join on with the herd to the thing that's currently, currently being seen as good. And then anyone who's not following that and polarizing against, because of course there must be another side, even if I don't really know what the other side is. It's just anyone who's not into that. And it's gone as radical as we will actually cast out family members. You know, if you think about people who might have got caught onto a conspiracy theory, they'll actually shun family members who have a differing opinion. And so in many ways, the tribalism, you know, that generally happens during a time of of difficulty and upheaval has also been warped, right? I mean, it's just all the general tribal delineations have also split. You can't say somebody's left or right anymore. You've got people in the wellness community teaming up with pro-Trump supporters um, on a bunch of things. You know, it's... It's a really interesting thing, right? Because a lot of these lines are really cutting across social groups. Like you can have someone who's staunchly hippie and also or staunchly liberal and also very pro-vaccine and also very for vaccine and and you're still friends within those social groups but then those tensions get greater and so it's harder to ignore tensions that previously were like okay most of the people i know believe about the same things that i do and now in order to get a group of people who believe the same things i do it has to be a very small tight group of people and the internet makes it more possible to find that than ever before previously it was like well 
you know, I'm with my neighbors and my neighbors believe what I na- my neighbors do. And there's like a wider variety of things. But now on the internet, I can find a group of people that believe exactly what I do. And we get these echo chambers where those ideas are just spinning tighter and tighter. And we radicalize. And then we radicalize in such a way where if anybody challenges those views, they're automatically outside of the group. And, and when we get kicked out of a group, we, use, we lose our belongings. So we've got all of these cross incentives towards humanizing others and hearing their views, even though almost all of the, us actually want that. Yeah, it's it is a horrible thing to witness, isn't it? I mean, we're both in it and then I suppose somebody like yourself, you're standing outside observing it all. I think I also heard somebody point out we grow up leaning on our parents to learn communication cues and also to get the information we need to understand the world. And we used to then transition to friends and community for that kind of thing. But we're not making that transition so much anymore. We're now switching to technology. So we go from our parents, if we look at young people, directly to technology. And so, you know, in terms of you're talking about we're going into close-knit groups, but then we're shunning out, for instance, friends and community who can act as a nice sounding board for reality and nuanced perspectives. Is that something you're watching as well? It's a pretty weird difference. Like my my, uh, goddaughter... Um, who is 17 years old, She, I used to watch the way that she engaged. And at her age, I would be going out and like making friends with the guy I thought was cute at GameStop, who was like completely different and way too old for me and um, going and meeting people at libraries and such and talking with my classmates. And instead it was like, she would show me endless TikToks of people who thought the same as her saying things that she already understood. And I was like, whoa okay, I understand a little bit more of how this is happening now. Like she had a much stronger sense of identity than I did at her age for sure. And in some ways, a stronger sense of what was going on in the world, but only espousing the kind of values that she she already knew in a way. It was like, it was like a tighter circle getting tighter instead of broadening what the possibilities were. So what's that doing to our ability to communicate? I mean, I think we still, I guess I, I'm, I'm figuring out how to define communication. Like just in terms of, I think we're able to talk to each other in the same ways, but the number of views we have on topics are maybe getting smaller, but also getting like, we have to watch our words more is what I'm noticing. Like, um, So I run an event called Facilitation Fear Lab each week where basically I invite facilitators to bring um, whatever their greatest fears and nightmares are of what could happen in a facilitation scenario. And I had... Um, a guy a couple of weeks ago who was a graduate school teacher in meditation is an Asian American guy. And he said, okay, the fear scenario I have and something that's happened in small ways in class and worried it's going to happen in a larger one is that I'm going to be teaching about meditation and Eastern philosophy. And one of my students is going to stand up and say, how dare you? This is super disrespectful. How could you teach about Eastern philosophy in a Western classroom? And basically that he could get canceled. And I was trying to work with him on like, what would you say back to that? Like, what do you say when the communication is essentially shaming? It's like you and your social group and your whole institution are wrong for the thing you're doing. And there's real consequence if you push back. And I don't think that's an intentional string of of incentives that we've created or have been created for us. But I know that in a lot of social groups right now, there is this fear of if I speak out and I say the wrong thing, 
I'm going to get canceled. And that's, that's always to some extent been the case. Like there's always been the fear of if I say the wrong thing, I'm going to get ostracized. The difference now is that there's a lot of different topics that that can exist on. Like, is it gender? Is it race? Is it politics? Is it instead of being like, well, if I commit adultery, I could get canceled from my tribe. It's like, if I speak out on any of these 50 different topics, I can get canceled from any of these 50 different tribes and all of them matter. So we're starting, I think, to filter more and more for what can we say that's going to be safe. And we also just almost refuse to go into nuance, to allow for it, to actually spend the time wading around in it. Tell me, what did you actually tell this guy? What was the advice in terms of what to say back to his class if that did come up? Yeah, well, the interesting thing about that event is it's not so much advice as like, we actually create the scenarios. So basically we're like, cool, let's cast all of the people on this call right now as participants. And like, who's going to be the student that's going to attack you? Like, who else is there going to be somebody that supports them or somebody that like supports you? And then we play it out so they can get a visceral sense of like, what would they do in that scenario and what it's like? And then we'll pause and we'll have other people lead and we'll try other things. So I'm trying to remember what some of the things that, that he did or others did was something, something that I noticed when he was trying to facilitate it is we have this idea of like uh, posture or collapse so when faced with something that's threatening, usually we either like posture, like I'm going to, you know, this is not okay. And I'm going to need you to sit down because I am the teacher here. Like we, I puff myself up, I get big, I take status. The other option is I collapse. It's like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm really sorry. Um, I, I'm aware that that was maybe a disrespectful thing that I, I could have said. And um, I'd love to hear your view. Like there's, I'm, I'm going to get meek, I'm going to get small. Um, and he was definitely going towards that end. So the thing I mainly noticed was like, hey, in this case, like you are the person in the room with power and you've just totally given it up. And that creates this power vacuum where now the, the loudest and angriest voice in the room is the one that's taking over and guiding the discussion. And oftentimes that's what's happening in these situations is the people in power are the ones that are really scared that if they assert their power, they're going to get canceled or they're going to get shot down. And so when they give up their power, it creates a vacuum that the loudest and most polarized voice steps into. So it's basically like, okay, can you, can you attain a sense of, of dignity? So it's like, it's like, what, what is the center of that where you're neither like getting too big or getting too small is like a sense of, of centeredness of, of dignity from that place. Can you maybe put the attention back on the student and ask something like, Hey, you know, I'm hearing that you have an objection to the way I'm teaching this. And my perspective is that teaching this material is still really important because of the rich history of Eastern culture that you guys might not get to know if someone doesn't teach it. And so I'm curious if you have a preference about how this could happen. So there's like a way of, I'm, I'm going to reveal what's happening in me, and then I'm going to put some agency on the other side, because a lot of the time what we're getting in these discussions is someone telling us, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong without having an idea of what they would prefer and really exposing that contradiction by saying, Hey, I'm going to trust you. If you give me an idea of what you want instead, I will do my best to meet it, but you have to tell me what that is. And I will work with you to help you find it. Yeah. Putting it back on the other person who's kicking up a stink to actually help solve the problem rather than just be in a stink. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think, look, I think most people would like to delve more into nuance and not be trapped in binary arguments because it's driving us 
all mad at a personal level at home with our partners or our children, um, but also in the workplace and in our communities. So I would love if you could just talk me through some skills for navigating all of this. And the first thing I'd just get you to explain, which I think I found really interesting when I was researching researching you, is you refer to a sort of a technique for determining if it's almost worth having the conversation and you refer to the three gates that a conversation should pass through. Could you just talk through that briefly? Yeah, there's been two theories, well, multiple theories, I'm a nerd, um, that I've been playing with lately, but one of them is uh, determining whether or not I say something in conversation. There's this idea um, that's a Buddhist ideal, sometimes attributed to Socrates, which is um, when I say something, checking if it's true, if it's necessary, and if it's kind. Truth is actually a complicated one, as we're finding these days. I think one of the things that's most difficult about the world we're in right now is that we killed the god of religion and replaced it with the god of science. And now we're killing the god of science because we've realized that there's no one scientific truth and we're left without any gods at all. We're like, oh shit, now what do we do? You could see truth. Sometimes it's objective. Sometimes I can be like, the vast majority of these studies say da 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 da, da like, and I'm going to present the evidence. But I need to know if the other person is willing to hear it. Like, is it necessary for me to give that information to meet my goal? So truth oftentimes looks more like, what is my personal truth in this moment? Like subjectively, what can I say that the other person can't disagree with? What are my feelings? What are my sensations? What are my perspectives? And and owning them as my own. Like, here is what I have read and here is what it meant to me. And then on the other side, like, what is your truth? What did you take from this? What is the word vaccine bring up for you? Or what is your understanding of the history of that, right? So like understanding what the other person's perspective is. If I can say it, I want it to be as true as possible for me in that the other person couldn't couldn't come back and they could say, well, that's not your experience, but that wouldn't actually be true. Like they can't reasonably tell me that my experience isn't mine. If I say I'm scared about vaccination or I'm scared about COVID, if somebody says, no, you're not, that's actually gaslighting. <laughs> so that's truth. Um, necessity is something a lot of people don't actually contemplate is what is my goal in this conversation? Like, what do I want to get out of it? If all of a sudden, if I thought that I was having a nice family dinner and all of a sudden we're debating over whether Trump should be president, um, we've gone from a goal of kind of usually an undefined goal of like, we're just kind of trying to pass normal time together, um, into a goal of, where one person maybe feels like their goal is I need to convince you of a perspective. The other person's goal is let me get out of this conversation as fast as possible. And then the question becomes, is that really the goal that we want to hold? Like if I really check in with myself in that moment, is my goal to get out of the conversation as fast as possible? And in fact, I'll usually find that there's more than one goal there. There's, I want to get out of the conversation, but also I want to prove that my point is right and also I'm aware that if I run away right now, then we're going to continue having this conversation and I don't want that to happen. And also I feel like the world is in danger if this person keeps telling me that Trump is supposed to be president, right? So I've got all these goals at the same time. I'm not really filtering through them to decide which is more true to me and which is more kind to myself and the other person. So, so in that moment, starting to pause and just taking a step back and going, what am I wanting here and what is necessary to get that done? If my goal is really that I want to get out of the conversation as fast as possible, what can I say or do 
that is necessary to get that goal accomplished. Which maybe is saying, hey, I need to go to the bathroom and getting up and leaving, right? Then I'm like, cool, I've gotten my goal accomplished. How do you check in with yourself to actually have that conversation when you're in the middle of a you know dinner or whatever it might be? Uh, do you have any personal techniques for sort of pausing, you know, really pausing and taking a look at things? My best way to do it, totally honestly, is I just say, hey, I need just a second. I literally close my eyes because when there's a lot of stimulation coming in from outside, I can't focus on whatever's going on in me. And the other person will pause. Like if, if I, you know, if I ask them, I close my eyes, I can't see them if they're making any sort of facial expression. I take a breath, I figure out where I'm at in space. And I ask myself in that moment, what is going on for me? Why am I upset here? And I take a breath into that and I really contemplate. And then I open my eyes and I say, you know, I'm noticing I'm getting really upset about this. And here's why. And I try to do a little bit deeper of a reveal because if I'm starting to feel like as soon as I feel tense, as soon as I feel like I'm trying to win, I I might win the argument, but I've lost the relationship because people don't like being won against. They also kind of really don't like being lost against like they think they do. But for the sake of the relationship, it doesn't really maintain any sense of strength. So if I can't think, if I can't see the other person's view, I'm already beyond the point where I should be continuing to have the conversation. So I need to deescalate it in some way. And sometimes that's, you know, I want to take a pause. Can we just like, uh, I just want to go wash the dishes for five minutes and then I'll be back and we can keep talking about this. Yeah. Yeah. I, I generally go to the toilet, staring at a toilet uh, wall yeah, is a um, very, 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 very helpful. Um, the, the bit that I like the most um, in terms of the gate, the three gates is, is, is it kind? Can you talk through that? Yeah. Kind, also an interesting one because none of these are like an instant checkbox because each of them have multiple um, perspectives. There's what's, what's kind for me. That's what's, what kind, what's kind towards myself. There's what's kind towards the other person. And then there's kind of like a, um, a world centric kindness. Like what is kind towards the people that we touch in their lives or towards other people. Right. So it's like in this moment, I might be kind towards myself and you to some extent by ending the conversation But then if I think the person I'm talking to is going to go out and tell 50 people not to take the vaccine, and I think that's a dangerous thing, then it might not be kind towards the world as a whole, right? So I'm checking in in that. But what I'm looking for in that moment is like in the state of trying to get what is necessary, trying to get my goal accomplished, is there a way I can do that that really takes into account what matters to me? like kind of the softer parts of me, my emotions, my fears in this moment, my hopes, my sense of the relationship, um, my own triggers and traumas. And then with the other person too, like, cause I could get my goal accomplished. I could convince them that the vaccine is good or the vaccine is bad, but do it by systematically dismantling all of their arguments. Like that would be true and that would be necessary, but it wouldn't actually be kind. Like it would leave them with a bad taste in their mouth and us with a bad sense in the relationship and probably make them less likely to listen in future to someone who has the same perspectives I do. So kindness is like taking that extra moment and just really saying, is there a way that I can honor their feelings and concerns and my feelings and concerns more in this moment? Like, is there a way I can 
soften my voice or appreciate something about what they're doing or um, kind of uh, bring in a reflection of what I hear them saying or imagine about what matters to them. Like all these ways are, are inserting a little of what we call psychological safety into the conversation, which is the, the knowledge that I can show up as myself and be received for it. Yeah, we absolutely don't get taught that, in particular putting things through that that lens of kindness. And, gosh, it just sounds so nice listening to you talk about it. If the world could actually incorporate that third dimension, it would just mm-hmm. be wonderful. <laughs> It'd yeah. be so refreshing. But, look, once we've established that, look, we can go ahead with, um, you know, with this conversation, a difficult conversation, whatever it might be, I would love to sort of get get a technique, a tip, a way of arguing or discussing or conversing with somebody who isn't necessarily on board with this way of thinking, which really, if we're going to be honest, is most of the world. We might be doing all we can to arrive at a good spot in the conversation. Um, But really, a lot of the skill comes from how to navigate tricky people, people who who aren't necessarily on the same page as you. Um, Learning how to speak their language, almost kind of going to their side of things and 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 playing in their camp to, to get the best outcome. Um, could you talk us through, I guess, one of your favourite techniques for navigating that and getting the best outcome? I mean, one of them that everybody knows but is honestly probably the most valuable is curiosity and a mm-hmm. specific type of curiosity, like um, listening for what it is that this person actually cares about. And we teach a model called um, context, content, and concern. The content is what we're talking about. The context is like the frame on the argument or the frame on the discussion, which is something like right now, both of us know that we're having an argument about um, about vaccine. I keep using vaccines because it's still like the top of mind one. We both know we're going to have an argument about vaccines or whatever. I'll talk in a minute about other ways you can use context. But concern is like, what are the motivations? What are the desires? What are the reasons I care about this topic in the first place? So when you're in conversation with someone that has a different view, really starting to ask about, well, like, why does this matter to you? What experiences have you had that tell you that this is an important thing? Like, not necessarily what, have to- what are things that have told you that your view is true? what has you think that it matters? Is your, is your kid sick? And has that happened? Or, you know, did you almost get um, kicked out of a, of a social group by a neighbor because you had a different view? Or do you believe that um, people are genuinely going to be hurt or that your family is going to be hurt if you don't believe the same thing? There are these underlying fears that really drive, drive our perspectives. I'll give, I'll give an example like between two examples in my mind, but I was having a conversation with my mom a week or so ago. And she, this was not like necessarily a political thing, but she had a judgment that I spend too much money. Uh, and I was like, Oh shit. Like that's, you know, that's kind of an issue. It's like, is she going to stop giving me anything for my birthday? Because she believes that I spend too much money and, or is she going to judge my lifestyle? Uh, and instead of saying, Hey, like, here's my perspective. You know, here's the way that I spend money. I instead was like, well, her worldview on what it means to spend too much money might be different than mine, right? So just starting to 
give that overview of how I spend money might not actually get me what I'm wanting because it might not even fit into the worldview that we're talking about. I might be like, I've spent only $300 on this thing. And in her world, she might go, that's an insane amount of money to spend on anything. So instead of going to clarifying, I started asking, why do you think that frugality is important? Why is that an important value? Uh, I also asked, well, when did you start saving up? Like you, you're saying that you're worried because I don't save. Like, when did that happen for you? So she said, well, yeah, like, you know, when I was around your age and I asked, well, why did you start doing that? Um, and she said, well, you know, at that point we were having y'all and we were planning to have kids and that was an important thing for the future. So it's like, okay, like a reason for her to save up is because she feels like there's some sort of future benefit to it. So then I said, well, in my world, there isn't a lot to save up for in the future yet. Like, I don't know yet if I want to have kids and I have health insurance. So like, and I'm, you know, not going to get a house anytime soon. So realistically for me, there's, I don't have the same, it, it, even if I take on your value in my world, it, it doesn't look like there's the same set of needs, but I'd like to know if you think I'm wrong. So that's the next piece of it is you give the other person a way to win. You get curious about your value and then you basically go, do you have a different perspective? Can you teach me something here? Usually if we, the, the most valuable motivation to go into a conversation with is, can I learn something here? Because you're, you're, always, you're almost always going to win no matter what happens and you're going to deepen relationship with the other person. So um, can I, you know, what is their value? Can I learn something? Can I let them win? The fascinating thing that came out of that conversation is that my mom started questioning the reason that she held such a value on frugality. And we started to realize that some of the bases of that were actually not accurate. That basically she felt like uh, it was, it was an interesting dual thing. Oftentimes our values, like they're, they're moral codes more than they are values. So when we dig into them, we find all sorts of contradictions. So she like felt frugality was important, but she also judged herself for holding frugality because she felt like she denied herself things as a result of it. So then we looked into that and we we're like, well, what do you feel like you deny yourself? And it became this fascinating discussion that had so much more to it than just, hey, daughter, you need to spend less, which is how it showed up initially. And it was actually really hard to respond to because I felt attacked. Yeah. And so it actually delivered the kindness, didn't it? You know, in the end. She walked away going, wow, that was one of the coolest conversations we've had. And I feel like my view has been really expanded and it was really cool. Curiosity in a previous podcast, I've discussed it as a technique for actually overcoming anxiety. It's There's a whole range of mechanisms that take place in the brain and it dampens the amygdala, which is wonderful. So at the same time, it's also probably dampening any kind of um, heightened energy as well in that conversation. So a bit of a double whammy there. The other thing that's really cool about it, uh, Kasher, I love Kasher Baniak's work a lot and she talks about, um, she talks a lot about power something that she says is that when we feel on the spot, like you were saying in conversations where I feel like, uh, wait a second, things are going on and I need to, like, how do I reorient? Um, curiosity is a way of getting the attention off of ourselves and, and flipping the script in terms of power. So it gives us a little bit of breathing room. This idea of people being a different kind of type, we love types, don't we, when <laughs> we're discussing these kinds of things, but the receptive, expressive type, which I think is 
telling stories, and then the third type being a challenger, which is the person who loves to banter. Can can you talk us through those different types of people and how important it is to work out what kind of person you're talking with is so that you can then navigate the situation in and out of, I suppose, a, a stressed response to a more of a safety response? Something that I've been noticing as I've been talking to a lot of different types of people is that even when we have really good tools for communication, there's still some sorts of people that we don't really seem to get along with. And a lot of the reason feels like because we judge the way they're communicating um, as much as we judge the topics they're communicating on. We think that they're too long-winded or too intrusive or don't really share their opinions or really quiet or you know, debate us and are aggressive. Like these are all types of people. And as I've done research on this, I've developed this theory called the relating languages. And the idea is that there are four types, two are more receptive and two are more expressive. Um, receptive means that I expect the other person is going to leave space for me to speak. I expect there's going to be like, you know, a, a period of the conversation where I get a chance to talk and you signal that that chance is coming. And the other type believes that um, if you want to talk, you're going to interrupt. You know, you're going to bring yourself forward. And so you can imagine what happens when a member of each of those types gets in contact with each other. One type is thinking, man, this person is so rude. They just like keep fucking talking and never giving me a chance. And the other side of person goes like, wow, this person never shares about themselves. Like, why are they never interrupting me? I'm just talking forever. I want them to say something, right? There's this really interesting thing. I know so it very, very well. I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. as, and so I just interrupted you then. Yeah, um, <laughs> I'm very much in the, in the expressive camp. And I just think of my mother who is in the more receptive camp. I mean, she'll actually sit at the dinner table waiting till somebody offers her the pepper and salt <laughs> rather than asking for it. And we're just like, just ask for it. Interrupt, yell over the top of right. the rest of us. Yeah. It's such a different, it's such a different mindset though. Um, and I grew up with with more receptive parents as well. Um, at least my mom is like the the receptive types are questioner and observer, and the expressive types are storyteller and challenger. And I grew up with um, questioners in my family, uh, and I didn't really understand. Like I felt like storytellers were very rude until, and I couldn't figure out. Like I just figured they liked to monologue a lot, right? I was like, wow, this is really you know self centered. Until I found out that for storytellers, a lot of the motivation is. I'm going to talk about things that I find interesting to stimulate the conversation because then it's going to come up with topics that other people want to talk about. And I'm expecting that if someone isn't interested, they're going to say something like some storytellers are like, dude, I'm just, I'm still talking here. I'm waiting for someone to come in and interrupt me. (laughs) I totally, totally relate. I'll often be bantering away. I'm sick of the sound of my voice. And I'm like, can somebody please have an opinion here? Please interrupt. And I'll gladly sit back. (laughs) And I, I found it so fascinating that we just don't think of or get shown these distinctions. Instead, it's like there's this whole social blind spot where the only way we have to distinguish it is, I think this person is rude. Like that's the word we use when in reality, someone has a different relating language than us. Questioners, you know, really want to know deeply about other people and they're going to ask a lot of questions, um, but they can get subsumed in the other person's world. They can feel like they don't get a chance to share about themselves and they can come over on the other side as like sometimes being overly intrusive when really they're like, everyone likes being asked questions, right? And so they're kind of, and and they won't share necessarily unless they get asked themselves. 
And sometimes their questions can even be a little bit misattuned where they're like, I just want to know so much. I'm going to keep barraging you with them instead of really going, okay, where's this person at? So if you're a receptive person and you're struggling with an expressive type, what can you do? What can you do to navigate it better? Yeah. So from a more energetic level, the first thing I do is I literally just, and I don't know another way to describe this. So those who kind of understand uh, kind of like placing your attention at different places in your body will probably get this. If you don't like, see if you can actually try it on an interaction where you notice how much of your attention is on the other person. So like how much are you aware of their words, their facial expressions, their movements, the environment around them versus how much are you aware of like what you are not just thinking in your head, but feeling in your body, what your body position is in that moment, what you're wanting, all of that. So literally like if you're with someone who's speaking a lot, something that can happen for receptive people is their like energy just goes out and out towards the other person but they also get more and more tense inside. They're like waiting for their turn, but they're also kind of trying to pay attention to the other person. They're like getting split between these places. So either... You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. What you can do is just put all your attention out on the other person and decide, cool, I'm just going to listen. And I'm going to like take in information and I'm going to ask about the things I'm curious about. Or you can put all of it back on yourself or more of it back on yourself. And you could go, cool, like, what am I curious about here? What am I wanting here? If I was allowed to allow myself to be rude, what would I do in this moment? And most of all, what experiments can I try? This is my top tip for changing any sort of social interaction. Like when you also asked me how to get out of polarizing conversations make an experiment for yourself. Say for the next week, anytime my dad brings up a difficult topic and starts rambling on and on about it, I'm going to lean, whenever he says something that I feel vaguely interested in, I'm going to lean in and I'm going to go, hey, wait a second. Would you tell me more about that thing? People are fine being interrupted if you give them a direction to go to. Like if you genuinely feel excited about knowing something else about what they're talking about, you can totally interrupt and redirect them and have a more interesting conversation from that way. I like that one. That's a really good one. And I do like the idea of experimenting because it keeps things curious once again and playful. And so then you get a little bit of distance from your sort of, you know, anger or your resentment that you might be might be feeling. Um, what about the other way around? If you're an expressive person and, and you're dealing with somebody who's, you know, just not contributing anything, they just sit there and, you know, wait to be led, you know, um, what do you do there? One thing I'd say is 
allowing a little more spaces in the conversation. Something storytellers will do is if they notice that they have uh, other people in the conversation or another person who hasn't been talking, sometimes they'll get tense and their first impulse is, I'm going to keep talking, but I'm just going to include the other person in things I say. So I'm going to say things like, well, you know, and like, um, it's like when you and I were, and then they'll continue telling the story, right? So they won't actually leave space. They'll just like include the other person in it. Especially if you notice yourself doing that, it can be a sign that you're noticing an imbalance in the conversation. And in that case, just like after you tell something, leave a pause for a minute and like do something with your hands. If you feel anxious, let the other person have a chance to step in. If you remember, ask them a question like, you know, what's your experience of that? Oftentimes, if one person's telling a story in a group, I'll sit back or I'll tell my own story. uh, And then I'll ask like, hey, I'd love to go around and hear like, does everyone else have an experience of this? Like, can we each share an experience of it? So you can invite other people to tell stories as well. The other expressive type is the challenger, which works a little bit differently. So this is the type that tends to debate, tends to banter. What they're really looking for is an engagement. So they'll comment, they'll like bring things to you very directly. Challengers get seen as abrasive, but in reality, what they're looking for is engagement. Like they want someone to to come back at them. They want the back and forth. They work great with other challengers, like comedians, usually co-challengers that are just going back and forth with each other unless they're like stand up doing storytelling. And so with challengers, the thing to notice, I'd say, well, if you're if you're more receptive or any of the other types engaging with a challenger, first thing is assume that they don't want to hurt you. My partner is very much a challenger, and that's the thing I constantly had to remind myself of. We used to have this this thing that we just say, same team whenever I was getting upset, like we are on the same team here. He's not trying to hurt you. Yeah. Mm. So experiment with the idea that they're not trying to hurt you and bring some sort of comment back. Or if you're uncomfortable with just happening to be like, Hey, that's actually a little too far for me. Um, Just so you know, like, can we turn the conversation in a different direction? Like give them feedback on it as well. And they might not have a super great response at first, but usually after the initial response, challengers can be very self-protective. And so let them like, you know, have an initial response and then they'll usually be really open to hearing out what it is that you have to say. Ultimately you've met them with feedback, which is what they're after. You've met them with feedback. Remember that like they, their initial response might be kind of lashing back because oftentimes they're pretty quick thinking, but that's an initial response. It's like, you've just poked a bear, (laughs) you know, you might get slightly swatted, but then the bear is like, wait a second. No, I actually care about this person. So assume that they have good intentions, assume that they get high energy or looking for engagement, don't like being super intruded on often. If you're a challenger and you're working with other types, a really good thing can be to ask for feedback. So in moments where you're not feeling so intense and playful, just be like, hey, I know I can get really intense sometime. I just want to check in. Like, are you okay with how much I'm, how many jokes I'm making you know, when we're hanging out, are you okay with the sorts of comments I'm making? Is there anything that's like off limits? Like you don't want me to joke about it? Or are there any times where you notice like you're actually feeling hurt by the things I'm saying? Debriefs in relationship are just like such a key skill. It doesn't matter what type you are. If you can just do that check-in every once in a while in connection with the people you're with being like, Hey, I've got a weird question. I know we usually don't talk about this stuff, but like, I'm aware sometimes I can say things 
that you might get bored or offended, or you don't really know like why I'm saying it. I just want to check, like, have there been any moments like that where you're like, Hey, I really wish you hadn't asked that question. Or like, I felt hurt by that comment. Like, can we just take a second to talk about our connection instead of just in it? That's really good advice, although it's extremely vulnerable. But then again, that takes us to a nice place, doesn't it, in a conversation is any kind of vulnerability. Ultimately, it produces wonderful results. With vulnerability, the one thing I'll say is like, we generally have to share it first before asking it of the other person. And there's kind of two tools you can use for that. One is like, and I, I kind of did them both in that example where I said, I want you to give me feedback, but I didn't just say, can you give me feedback? I said, I want you to give me feedback because sometimes I know I can be a little abrasive and choose. So I basically made myself vulnerable first. And then I also gave options to the other person for them to play off of. I said, so is there a time when I've like asked a question that made you uncomfortable or made a comment that felt too intense? So basically like revealing myself first and then giving them options is, is like a pretty surefire way to make sure you're actually going to get good feedback instead of the like, no, 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 you're fine that we think we're supposed to do. I want to go through some examples of some fairly common, I suppose, relationship breakdowns that I'm seeing around the place. And if you have a nice, easy tip or hack that you can throw it at, at us for, for handling such a situation better in the future, that would be wonderful. So look, we brought up the idea of vaccines, but let's say climate, you know, difficult conversations on climate, where the other person is spouting evidence that you know is not accurate, or at least it's only partially accurate. Um, It might be a false equivalent, it might be whatever it is, but it's so much and you honestly don't either have the expertise, time or energy to sort of pull it all apart. What's the best approach in that scenario, particularly if you're wanting to sort of swing them around to the truth? I'm between like giving some tips and like, let's actually try it out I don't know if this is going to work, but I think these will work best if we can like try a mock Let's scenario. try it out. Let's try it out. If it doesn't work out, you can go back to giving a tip. <laughs> yeah. I will say something real quick about this one first though. Um, it's very, I hate to say this, but it's very, very hard to change someone's mind. And if we do, they need to have a reason that's important enough for them to change their mind, which could be like trying to find a competing value. Um or trying to find like, you know, trying to lead them to find other evidence or whatever, but it almost never works to present other evidence to them. So I'm just going to say that straight off. This may or may not work because the goal of I'm going to change your mind usually only is possible over like a long-term relationship and a lot of trust building first. People really only listen to those that they trust, but let's see if we can do some tools on it. Okay. All right. So how do we play this? Am I the person with the, with the incorrect information? Am I role-playing? If you're open to that, if you want to, if you want to play the other side, I'm also down to like, have you do tools instead. Okay. Um, so look, I mean, the science is not in, you know, the, there've been heat waves and floods for thousands and, you know, of years, this is not the first time it's happening. And, you know, the, the, the science is not conclusive. So I, I'm not going to peg everything on this being man-made and that we've got to change our way of living because, you know, hey, we've been living this way and it works. Yeah, I actually agree with that. Like from the research I've done, it's also true that there have been climate shifts for a long time. There have been ice ages, there have been changes. I personally believe that what we're experiencing now is more intense than in the past but I agree with you. And 
like for me, the idea that the climate may be changing feels pretty scary. And it's one reason why I'm drawn to have conversations about it. Cause I'm trying to figure out like how other people are navigating their own relationship to it. And it sounds like you do have a relationship to the topic. Like you have been thinking about climate change. Yeah, but I think that everybody's just scared of it because everybody's running around saying how bad it is when it's not right. Yeah. Gosh, this is hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're doing great. You're doing great. Um, yeah, I am scared of it. Um, and I know we've been friends for a while and uh, it's like I I don't want to deny your perspective about it, but I also feel sometimes like you don't really take my fear about it seriously, like quite independently of what I believe. I'm, I'm still scared. Yeah, but you know, maybe that's because you're listening to the wrong information, you know, like you're, you're listening to all these people saying that the world's coming to an end and after 2050, we're going to be doomed and there's going to be no more winter in Australia anymore and things like that. You know, maybe you need to listen to other people and, and do your own research. (laughs) Can't believe I just said that. This is great. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Um, So first of all, if you have people that you want me to listen to, I'm totally down to have some links because I'd love to be able to be having the same conversation about it. I'm curious if you would be open to doing the same, like not that you have to believe them, but it might be nice for us to just like be on the same page if we have a conversation again so you know what I'm listening to. Mm-hmm. I like what you did there because what you've done is thrown the work back onto me. I've got to go and dig up all of my evidence um, or at least the, the best evidence that so I can convince you back. Um Look, I'm, I'm open to that. I'm open to that, but I've read it all before. Okay. Yeah. I feel sometimes uh, like that about your perspective too. So I'm curious to see what you send me. Um, and listen, like kind of going to what I want in the conversation here, like I'd love to be able to convince you that climate change is real. I get scared when people don't believe in it because, you know, in my mind I say like, oh shit, what if this is real? And then like you're not prepared for like what if it is true that a flood comes through Australia and like your house gets washed away and I didn't tell you in time like that's what I'm really scared of is that for some reason you would get hurt from it and I can't convince you of that but that's the reason that I want to have the conversation um Sarah that's that's interesting what you did there I mean I'm very easily convinced back to my original position um but you essentially brought it back to interrelationships and and care and the assumed care I would have for you. Right. Well, that and I was playing that scenario out as if we were friends and we mm-hmm. actually did care about each other. We can be friends. If I'm just arguing with you at yeah. If I'm just arguing with you at a party, like it doesn't it doesn't matter almost, right? Like maybe we maybe we do just have an argument about the truth. There's not a lot of underlying relationship to come back to. There's not a lot of weight on it. But most of the time, the reason we care about these conversations is we're having them with people that we're going to have them with again. And then the question is, why do I want to convince you of it? Like, is it because I think you're going to go out and spread misinformation? Well, in that case, like, why do I care about that? And as I was imagining myself into this character, I was like, oh, if you were my friend, the reason I'd care about you being a climate denier is like, what if you don't, you know, waterproof your house and you get flooded? Like, I think that could happen in the next 50 years. So then the conversation we're having is not, is climate real or not? It's like, is there a downside to to you? You know, what contingency plans can I come up with for if that happens to your house? And 
you know, can I convince you that that might be a good idea or can I just let it go? Like it really changes it to being a different conversation instead of being about data. It's about outcome. Yeah. Yeah. And also you bring in that kindness again, um, which, which can be disarming. Okay. Moving on to some other classics um, that are floating around the joint in 2022, gaslighting. So um, how can we cope when we're being gaslit? Yeah, so gaslighting is when somebody tells you that your experience is not your own. Gaslighting in the definition of, and, and I use a different word than gaslighting than this, but basically when, if you're having a conversation with somebody and you're arguing about a topic and then you have an emotional reaction and the person says something like, oh, you're getting emotional again, we can't talk about this. Or they basically they basically make it not about the topic you're talking about or the data, but about emotion. Number one, this happens in every conversation all the time. Like it always becomes about you don't love me enough or you're so emotional or you're making me wrong again or whatever. Because when we don't have a good response to the facts, we're almost never actually talking about the facts. We're fundamentally talking about the relationship. You know, do you care about me enough to take my perspective? Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you care that I have a perspective? Um, we, we now know that we make decisions much more often emotionally than we do rationally. So the first thing is like, you're always talking about the emotions, whether or not you think you are. So when someone responds to the emotions or responds emotionally, that's a very, very normal thing to happen. One thing that you can do is you can recontext the conversation, bringing it way around to something we talked about a while ago. Um, if the conversation has gotten on to a completely different track than what you meant to do, then you pause it and you bring it back. You know, if you were talking with your husband about environmentalism and all of a sudden he's saying, well, like, well, you're just being overblown about this whole issue. You say, Hey, wait a second. You know, I'm aware that I'm like, I have a lot of emotion about this. And what I think we were talking about is whether or not we weatherproof the house. And so like, I just want to go back to that because we've got a week until this storm blows in and I'm really scared that we're not going to get to talk about it. So that's one thing you do. You just like ignore, you just go, what are we actually talking about here? And why do we want to talk about it? Um, So that's context. And that's my best tool for it. How do we ask for something, whether it's in a personal relationship or or in the workplace? Because a lot of people stall with that, whether it's a pay rise or you're wanting something from your partner, you're wanting them to X, Y, Z, do something better or or whatever it might be. A lot of people really struggle with that, particularly women. I think women have a very hard time asking for what they want. The best thing that you can do is reveal your concern or motivation. So, and, and think about this ahead of time. Why do you want that thing? And, and why do you want it for, for women? One of the things that can happen is like, we're very socially oriented. And if the reason that we want it is something like, well, I just want it for myself. We're going to have a hard time asking for it. We have a much easier time asking for things that benefit others. So when you're thinking through why you want something, ask yourself what eventual benefit will it have for the other person? Um, To use my mom as an example, again, for instance, because I've been practicing a lot of these tools on my parents who feel like, you know, the ultimate uh, kind of boss level for most people. At one point she wanted to uh, get an apartment separate from my dad um, because he's declining a bit in health. She was so scared to ask him about it because she knew that he would be really hurt by her like desiring to move out. And I said, okay, mom, like, what do you think the result is going to be a year down the line as dad continues to get worse? If you don't have a place and if you don't take care of yourself, like, do you think that you will be able to take care of him as well versus getting an apartment and having a little bit more space now? 
and putting it into that perspective of like how what she wants might benefit him in future and might benefit both of them in future helped her clarify like why that thing was important. And the same thing is like when we're representing the reason, the thing we want to the person, giving a reason that's really enrolling is helpful. So if I say, hey, boss, I want to raise, I could say, hey, I want to raise because I feel like I'm not being compensated enough for my work. Well, why do I feel like I'm not being compensated? What what good is it going to do for him for me to get a raise? What good is it going to do for the people in my life? So instead of just saying, because I feel like I'm not being compensated, which is about me, I could say, I want to raise because um, I'm not actually making enough to take care of my family. And if I don't get a raise, I'm worried that I'm going to have to find another job. And then I can go, and I know that if I end up stepping away from this position, it might take you a lot of time to train someone new. And I've gotten good reviews in the job I'm doing. So like, I'm asking for a raise of $5 an hour. And maybe even I've done the math to like what that would equate out to versus you hiring a new employee, but you don't have to necessarily go that far. You could just be like, if you give me a raise of $5 an hour, then I believe that I can do even better work and I'm going to be more passionate about what I do. So basically I try to find a rationale. I try to give a why and I try to have the rationale benefit the other person and also something that I can care about and fight for that's outside of me. Yep. Okay. This is a slightly different one, but in terms of conversations that we have with ourselves, um, I know that you've talked about having to make big decisions. And I think once you referred to the fact that you talk about what to do if you're swirling around with different options, with a whole heap of maybes or hell maybes um, that are sort of good enough, but they're not quite there. And I found this quite a wild concept. You were like experiment, like by breaking the pattern, by saying no to just about everything that's just a maybe in order to basically find your hell yes. Can you talk about that? Because I think that's really, really interesting. I think that a lot of people feel very empty and dead inside when they're swirling around in a whole heap of hell maybes. Um, And you can stay in that purgatory for a long time. Um, you can get stuck in the maybes and miss the hell yes because you're so stuck and swamped with a whole heap of maybes. How talk talk through that whole kind of concept? <laughs> I think it's really interesting. Sure, um, it's funny as you're saying it. I'm just like running through all the hell maybes that I'm living out in my life right now of like oh, things no. where I'm like, I need to change this. So I'm just going to say that like I think everybody has these all the time because there's a lot of incentives that keep us doing what we're doing that are beyond our own desires. Um, like in Western world, especially we go, well, individualism is really important and our morality is focused on what we want. And in Eastern and collectivist cultures, it's much more about like, what is that? If that's important to my family, was my family one. There's this great Pixar movie, um, Turning Red that I was watching last night. That's all about this, like the conflict between personal desire and family and community desire. So one thing is like, it's very hard to figure out what actually is a yes, because different parts of us are saying yes in different ways. So oftentimes we have to live into what the yes is going to be, but it requires being willing to recognize when things are not a hell yes and and start to calibrate them, start to run experiments, start to tune them up. I had a really, really interesting conversation this morning with my work actually, where one of my coworkers brought what's called a withhold to me, which is like, here's something that's keeping me from being like fully engaged in a full hell yes to what I'm doing. And she was basically like, I am feeling like disengaged with my work in the company because I feel like something is just off. 
And she said, you know, I feel like I'm not doing my best work and um, I feel uninspired and like, I don't really know what it is, but I feel like there's not enough clarity in the company right now. And my response was like, oh my gosh, I feel the same thing. <laughs> like I'm the CEO and I feel uninspired and I feel like I'm not doing my best work. And like, we were like, oh my gosh, we're all, and, and then we had a whole company meeting and we checked in about it, which is a really cool conversation to have in the company, right? To be able to go, hey, who else here is uninspired and feeling like you're not doing your best work? Benefit of being an authentic relating company. Um, yes, definitely. We've worked on it. Uh, and so when we realized actually that all of us were in this space of being a hell maybe with our job, then we were able to ask, why is that? Like, what are we doing that is causing us to be a hell maybe? And in reality, the fact was like, we've gone from being an in-person training company into an online one. And a lot of the tactics that we use that were so successful and the things that made us so great as an in-person company are not as existing online. So then we get into the, recognizing that we get into the next section of things, which is the real importance of like, how do you play with, why, why are how maybe so difficult and how do you play with them? Which is once you recognize that there's something that you don't want or might not want, it's like this void opens up where there, it, like all the yeses don't come rushing in again just yet. Cause, cause like the, the pinprick to let them in is, has been so narrow. Like you didn't have any space for them. So of course they didn't come in. It's like you've, when you've been in a, in a, slightly dysfunctional relationship for a long time, but you haven't met anybody new. And then when you end the relationship six months later, you meet the person in your dreams. Well, that person couldn't have shown up while you were in the relationship because you didn't have space for it. So we tend to not say no, because we're scared of that unknown that what am I going to do while I don't have a job? Cause my job right now isn't suiting me. What am I going to do while I don't have a relationship? If I say no to them. So the first question is like, are there ways to create more yeses from where I am? Like, are there ways on my team that we can talk about what roles are we playing that do or don't suit us? Or do I need to leave that fertile space of the unknown? Like one of the questions I asked this morning is cool. Like, what do we need to let die in order to create space for the things we don't know yet? Like, do we need to let some versions of our online company die? Do we need to, to maybe have some of us not here anymore or change jobs and the willingness to contemplate allowing in the unknown is, is really crucial here. Like we need that before something new can emerge. And the unknown is not a, I'm going to try these five new things. The unknown is often a, I'm going to sit with my own sense of failure. I'm going to sit with my uncertainty. I'm going to like, you know, sleep more. I'm going to start doing research. I'm going to talk to people who know who I think are experts in these topics, but I'm going to leave enough space open that I can do that. Yeah, if I'm hearing you right, really, when you say no to kind of meh maybes and get rid of a few of them after you've thought about it and reflected on it, it creates an openness. And I suppose what you're saying is instead of seeing the openness as an abyss, <laughs> that's scary, see the openness as a wonderful space that will let in the yeses. Like the yeses can only come in if you do the openness at first. And I think a conversation around that, when we start talking about it in those terms, it becomes manageable to say no to the maybes. It becomes actually inviting. But we don't talk about these things, do we? We don't talk about sitting in nothingness for a while in the uncertainty, watching your feelings come up until the next path presents itself. I think previously in in, in society we did. We used to have sort of 
as you said before, of gods that showed us how to do that, you know, and, and now we just don't have those leaders. Yeah. We're an intensely future-focused culture. We're told that it's wrong to be selfish, so we don't tend to speak up much for our own needs. We're told that it's wrong to be indolent and not have anything to do. We're told that it's wrong to care for ourselves and to care for others. We have so many competing demands, and we deal with a lot of it by keeping really busy. And it's hard to clear out space. It's hard to feel like we don't know what we're doing or like we're a failure for something going wrong. Like even that term of I'm a failure because something didn't work out rather than, wow, I'm making a choice to explore something new because something didn't work out. We have all these frames that disincentivize us. And I think that's what happens in conversations too. Honestly, bringing it back around to the topic of polarization, we don't we don't make ourselves vulnerable to new views because we're afraid of the uncertainty. Like what would happen if my views had to change? What would happen if this person saw me as, you know, as, as changeable as having different ideas as taking them in? Would they not believe that I have a solid enough personality? Would they not believe that I'm worth being part of my social group? What happens if I allow myself to be a person in flux instead of a solid state? And most of us don't have a lot of experience with that. It's actually, it's actually in every form of psychological development I've read, it is a psychological stage to allow yourself to be uncertain and allow your views and your personality to change. And it's one of the highest stages of development above role identified. Like I am my views, I am my social group, I am you know, a wife, a daughter, a teacher, whatever. The next stage up is like, I am a self exploring those things and, and like I'm figuring out how they relate with each other and I'm questioning my own views and I am fucking terrified about it. <laughs> Chatting with Sarah, I'm reminded of something Albert Einstein once said. If I had an hour to solve a problem, I'd spend 55 minutes thinking about the problem and five minutes thinking about the solutions. So much about better communicating is actually articulating and understanding the problem in the first place, being okay to sit in the openness and the unknowing of the problem itself. So I thought it might be helpful um, this time to to top line the various hacks Sarah shared with us because there were quite a few. So first of all, she recommends sitting with whether a conversation passes through the three gates. Is it true? Is it necessary? And is it kind? I think this hack can really frame whether it's a conversation to walk away from or to stay with, and also it can help us steer us to the artfulness that we can bring into the conversation. So if kindness is missing, we can soften our voice or we can bring in an aspect of the conversation that matters to the other person. Another tip she shared was to pause and have a thing that you might do while you ensure your chat is passing through the three gates. She closes her eyes for a moment and she did it a few times in our conversation. I get up and go to the loo. You might get up and take the rubbish out. It's an opportunity to regroup and to return with more truth or clarity on what's necessary or to bring more kindness to the conversation. Also, curiosity. I find this a super helpful meta lens to put a lot of things through. And ditto Sarah's idea of running experiments Like find out why the issue matters to the other person that you're talking to or dig into their values. If you've focused on what someone else can teach you, you'll always win and the other person doesn't need to lose. 
Curiosity also gives us breathing room. It takes the attention off us and our feelings, which is also super helpful. Then there's the trick of identifying the relating language of the other person and then finding ways to navigate it to get to the best outcome together. If you're a receptive person, that means you sort of sit back and maybe think about things and wait to be invited into a conversation, trying to cope with an expressive person, so a storyteller or a challenger can be tough, and she recommends reading your body and witnessing how you can often feel split. If you're a receptive person, which is somebody who sits back and and observes and listens and doesn't always interject, waiting to be invited to the conversation, trying to cope with an expressive person, you know, the storyteller or the challenger can be really tough, I imagine. Um, So she recommends when you're in that scenario, you're often split, your body's split between being with yourself and thinking about when you can interject or whatever, and then being hyper aware of the storyteller or the challenger. And she recommends just witnessing that in your body and either choosing one or the other, choosing to sit with yourself quietly and being cool with just listening or fully focusing on the other person and just finding the right moment to maybe interject and and redirect them to something uh, that they've been talking about that you find interesting, something like, oh, that's interesting, tell me more about whatever the subject was. And if they're challenging you too much, a little thing to remember is that they're not trying to hurt you and she uses the phrase same team, which you might find helpful as well. If you're an expressive person and you're talking with a receptive type and they're driving you mad because they're not contributing, pause as often as you can. Just pause and perhaps ask them a question or two. When you're asking for something, frame the question in terms of how it will benefit the other person. And finally, and I really love this bit, when you're having a conversation with yourself, you know about some of life's big questions and there's no hell yes that's presenting itself and instead you're in a quagmire of hell maybes. Say no to the maybes, like really boldly say no, no to the maybes, get rid of them and make a whopping great space of uncertainty and possibility and wait for the yeses to kind of pour back in. And in the meantime, be curious and experiment and be kind and perhaps just a little bit wild. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.